Hello and welcome to episode 52 of Fully Scored. As always, we've got an episode jam-packed full of facts, fun and faith. This episode sees the conclusion of our epic trilogy of Bandmaster Jonathan Evans' analysis of Ray Steadman Allen's illustrative on Ratcliffe Highway. If you haven't heard parts 1 and 2 of the deep dive, make sure to listen to them in our previous two episodes before immersing yourself here for part 3. Or be a full-on rebel and don't, we can't really stop you. But before we embark on that Victorian voyage, it's time to introduce our guest for this episode. After 53 years in the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, Principal Trombone Ronald Prussing retires this month. To celebrate that phenomenal legacy and milestone, we spoke to Ron about his time in the orchestra, but also his musical roots and Salvation Army music making. Let's head down under. Well, Ron, thank you so much for joining us on Fully Scored. It's a real privilege to chat with you today. And once again, via the wonders of Zoom, I'm sat here in the West Midlands of the UK, and you're coming from the Sydney area in Australia. I hope you're having better weather than we are at the moment. We're having very, very hot weather, and uh, I've been looking at the cricket today, and it's Australia Day as well. Excellent. All rolled into one terrific package then. Now, this interview comes at quite a significant milestone in your life, as this month you're retiring from your position of principal trombone of the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, it's after 53 years. Um, This would have been the 54th year, but um, it's been nearly 44 years as a permanent member. Can you tell us a little bit about the experiences that you've had in that role as principal trombone with the orchestra? Oh, um, you want me to truncate 44 years of experiences into an interview? Um, it's been a wonderful time. Um, I've learned an awful lot about uh, brass playing, as you would understand, and I've tried to translate that into my uh, bandmastership over the years and into my band training. Um, I've had some many marvellous experiences. Um, uh, we had, you know, conductors like Lauren Mazel um, and uh, Charles Dutois and uh, Morris Jansons come through, and you know, some very very fine conductors. Yannick Yannick Nezet Sagan, who is now the current principal uh, conductor of the uh, Philadelphia Orchestra, and uh, you know, we you, you learn a lot from these musicians. Um, in my bandmastership, um, I've learned a lot about how to conduct um, by looking at these very, very fine conductors and musicians. And, um, yeah, it's it's been a wonderful time. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Now, to dig a little bit more into some of those experiences, I guess from an outsider's perspective, one of the most significant events that you played for was the opening of the iconic Sydney Opera House. What was that like? Oh, that was an extraordinary experience. Um, I was a casual uh, or an extra, as you might call it in London, um, when that experience uh, was presented to me. Uh, The reason being that the program was all Wagner and the second half was uh, all the orchestral scenes and then the immolation scene from Goethe Dameron, which is the last of the Wagner ring cycle. And the scoring for that particular concert required four trombones and they only had three permanent members and I got the nod to be the extra player uh, on that night and it was an unbelievable experience. We had this 
iconic building or turned out to be an iconic building um, in mired um, in controversy from day one when they awarded the contract to actually build it to an architect who uh, had to find out how to build it. Um, he just submitted some drawings, but they were so far ahead in concept of the drawings and the submissions of other architects that they chose this one and then it went from there. And uh, what we ended up with was the most amazing building out on the point in Sydney Harbour, uh, near the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and it's just a wonderful office to go to. So on the, the opening night, I don't think we realised quite then just how important that building was going to be in the history of the arts in Australia, and also how important it was to the future development of the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. And from a trombonist perspective, are the acoustics good in the building? Um, they were adequate. They were good, but uh, the hall did have some problems. And uh, for a lot of years, we sort of fought the, the, the acoustics. Uh, we developed a balance in our own internal sound. Uh, we opened the new building, the refurbished building, in July last year, and that showed us what they could do with the building. We hired some uh, acousticians from Germany, and they spent a lot of time living in Sydney and listening and then adjusting the hall, and then the government spent $300 million on the building. And uh, it is now an incredible concert hall. It's one of the best in the world. And uh, we spent all of those years up until last year sort of shouting at each other somewhat, and uh, now we're talking to each other, if I can put it in those terms. Amazing. That sounds really exciting indeed. Now, if you had to pick some other particular playing highlights from your time in the orchestra, if you can narrow it down to, say, three, what would those three highlights or moments from your time be? I would think that um, a Bruckner 7 symphony with Lauren Mazel, um, a Mahler 5 with Lauren Mazel, um, a Daphnis and Chloe, the complete suite of Ravel with uh, Charles Dutois, who's an absolute expert at the French repertoire. And uh, we also did a concert with him that was just the most exciting concert. We did the three Roman uh, trilogy of Respighi, the Fountains, the Pines and the festivals, the Roman festivals. Um, and uh, without a gap, he, he stayed on stage and uh, we just went down the three tone poems, started with uh, Roman festivals, had the fountains in the middle and then finished with the Pines of Rome, which has got the extra brass. And um, Peter Graham's done a good transcription of that movement that's been published in the festival series. But it was an extraordinary concert. Sounds amazing. Thank you for sharing. Now, a few more detailed questions whilst we got you here. Uh, in your experience, what's one piece from the orchestral repertoire that never fails to get you excited about performing it? Well, uh, Mahler 5, which is what I'm going to retire on in March. Uh, after four performances, that this, the last one being on the 2nd of March, I retire from the orchestra. Um, oh, wow, there's so many. Uh, Mahler 2, 
Symphony Mahler 2. I've got to say Mahler 3 because I'm a trombonist. It's got a big trombone solo in the first movement. Mahler 6 is a wonderful, wonderful play. Bruckner 8 is my favourite symphony. I think it's the pinnacle of the German symphonic tradition. Um, and I never, ever fail to be moved by playing that piece. But there are many others too. Yeah. Phenomenal symphonies there. I can't argue with that. Now on the flip on the flip side, is there ever a piece that you dread to see coming up on the concert programme? Oh dear. Now I better I better think about this one. Not actually dread, um, but uh, we did a tour in I think it was two thousand and nine of Italy and we had an Italian chief conductor, and that was his uh, swan song from the orchestra. And so he programmed Bolero every night with the trombone solo. And so looking at Bolero every night on tour, um, that was a bit of a nightmare, but I got through it. Um, I don't dread playing it, uh, but uh, sort of having to you know, bring a performance to an audience every night was um, a tall order. Um, one of the most difficult pieces I find is actually Brahms Symphony Number no. Two. Um, it's it's high. It's got some high D's, uh, concert D's, which is e, e above top C in the treble clef, and um, I just find that always a challenge, uh, especially the uh, big run down the scale right at the end of the last movement that uh, starts off in the bass trombone. The second trombone has it. And then uh, I have it right from a high concert D coming down again and picking picking that note out of the middle of nowhere. You know, that can be a little bit of a nightmare. But you've just got to prepare. Wise advice, indeed. Now moving on a little bit into the future, have you got anything planned to keep you occupied in your retirement or are you looking forward to just chilling and living every day by day? Oh, well, I'm looking forward to chilling. Um, I'm not looking forward to having to do my tax for the last financial year, uh, which I always put off, but um, I've got no excuse now. I've got to do it when I retire. <laughs> my wife and I own a caravan, and so we're going to tour Australia and do a lot of, lot of tours in that. Um, I, I hope to be involved somewhat in the brass band movement here in Sydney, um, I have some good connections there and um, I often get to conduct one of the local community bands that, who, who potentially are very good. Um, and uh, when, when their conductor's away, he's a young up-and-coming trumpet player and he's been away sometimes uh, and asked me to take the band for rehearsal and I, I look forward to doing that, that sort of stuff. I look forward to conducting the Melbourne Staff Alumni Band, which I've done for the last few years because Colin Woods retired and uh, asked me to take that band. And I very much enjoy um, putting that band together and playing some of the now sort of starting to fall into disuse, some of the major pieces that the Army have published over the years. And I enjoy that very much indeed. Fantastic. Well, it certainly seems like you're going to be keeping busy in your retirement. Yeah, I'm, I, I hope so, yeah. Good, and we wish you all the best with that. Now, let's talk a little bit more Salvation Army, shall we? Um, many may know that in the 80s and 90s that you were bandmaster of the Sydney Congress Hall Band. Uh, did you enjoy your time as bandmaster of that band? Oh, oh very much indeed. Um, it's a big responsibility 
being the bandmaster of a, a core band, um, especially in those days when Sydney Congress Hall Band was considered the staff band of Sydney, and we, we would you know be up for all the uh, territorial events. Um, we we didn't have an official staff band, so as a core band, it fell to us to play for Welcome to the Cadets, the commissioning, um, and and those sort of territorial events, um, and. Uh, I, I enjoyed that. Um, there are certain burdens that come with responsibilities like that. Um, you've always got people problems wherever you are. Um, and in a core that uh, uh, existed uh, a bit like the rink, we're in the core all day, at the core all day. And uh, every second week we started with a morning open air, followed by the morning meeting, followed by lunch, followed by songsters followed by an outdoor engagement with the band, followed by an open air, followed by dinner or tea, and, um, and then followed by the night meeting. It was a long day. And uh, so, you know, people had to be committed. And uh, the core actually grew when we moved out of our old building, when we were out of the old building for four years. And uh, we went back into the new building with a soldier's roll of 420. So it was a large core. And so where you've got a lot of people, you know, you, you do have your problems. But look, it was a wonderful core. It was a wonderful experience. Yes, I enjoyed my time as bandmaster very much. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And how did you balance your responsibilities, all those responsibilities, rather than just standing in front of the band? Um, and also your demanding role that you had in the symphony orchestra? Well, well, one of the good things was that um, Tuesday night when I first started was always uh, a very, very um, sparsely scheduled night uh, for concerts, you know. It was almost guaranteed that I had a free night on a Tuesday night, so we changed band practice to Tuesday night. And I, I often said that Congress Hall Band was the only band that I could have been the bandmaster of because we were very close to the centre of the town and I could just duck down to the opera house. I had parking down there. And uh, like even if I was on the second half of a concert, I could start band practice at 7.30. Um, the concert didn't start till late. So the second half usually uh, was, you know, not until, say, 8.45. And uh, I, could, I could do an hour of band practice before I had to go to work. Amazing. Well, great that it worked out that way. Now, my next question is another lazy question in a way and I hate asking it but <laughs> any highlights from your time with the band as bandmaster? Oh yes um, there were a lot of highlights uh, I remember our, our two uh, or three international trips but two in particular um, I took over the band just a year and a half before the band toured Canada with uh, Robert Redhead as the territorial music director over there and um, we had instituted in Sydney a style of concert called Brass Encounters. And we had, you know, video and audio and uh, played a lot of uh, non-army music as well. Um, and uh, I had uh, a great colleague who worked for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and uh, who was very, very good on the uh, audio visuals. And uh, we toured that concert through Canada and then in 85, and then in 91, we toured England with the same concert concept. And, um, you know, the, the band played extremely well. I, I do recall that um, I played uh, 
Ray Stedman Allen's The Eternal Quest on that concert, and also uh, the main piece of the night with uh, big audio-visual slides was The Holy War. And well, I had the pleasure of playing that, um, certainly in Sydney, but I remember uh, RSA had come back to England after his stint as the Territorial Music Director in the then Eastern Territory, and he was up at the Nottingham Hall when we played up there, and it was a really great pleasure to play in front of a, such a fabulous musician, and he was so encouraging. Um, he was a wonderful, wonderful friend and um, supporter uh, of the Congress Hall Band and me personally when, when he lived in Sydney. Now, you may have touched upon it already. Have you got a favourite solo to perform? Yes, I think The Eternal Quest. I love the the formal outlay of the piece, but I, I love the way that RSA has used the theme to express an idea. And I was looking at the, the liner notes of that just recently that were published in the score, and he hoped that it wasn't just a piece for people to play, but that it was a sermon in music. And it really is that, you know, the concept that uh, the Saviour is always looking for us. And uh, that is uh, just a, an extraordinary piece of music uh, to play. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it, uh, it moves people rather than just displays any sort of virtuoso uh, tendencies or musical concepts that you might have yourself. Absolutely. A true masterpiece. Now, I'm sure that uh, we'll have many trombonists from around the globe listening to this episode. So if I were to put you on the spot and ask for one piece of advice that you'd give to them, what would it be? Support the sound, learn to play legato, um, and uh, work on your intonation so that, you know, uh, the finer intonation things uh, blend with the cornets and and the rest of the band. And... uh, Use vibrato as a tool, not as uh, a starting point, because um, so many trombonists of yesteryear uh, had a, a sort of a vibrato that would mask uh, otherwise poor intonation. You've got to practice your intonation on the trombone, get the muscle memory so that it's in tune. Use a tuner, use a tuner, because um, you know I've heard many potentially good trombone player but they just don't quite get it in in the intonation and get it right and work on your sound sound is your calling card excellent i use a tuner mostly in my sandwich with the bits we (laughs) (laughs) yes spelt with an er the one i was oh okay okay (laughs) that makes more sense (laughs) great well thank you for sharing that wise wise advice indeed now i'm sure that as you were growing up you may have heard people give similar advice to you can you tell us a little bit about when you first came into contact with the music and your journey from that moment to becoming a professional musician? Yeah, um, actually, um, my father was a very, very good, and my mother too, they were very good core officers. And my dad told me several times that uh, he prayed for a musician to be in the family that could support him in his meetings and, um, you know, that was way back in the times when, when a lot of core had, you know, even country core here in Australia had big bands in them. And um, anyway, he sent me for piano lessons to a little German lady at, at a town out of Brisbane, about an hour and a half's drive out of Brisbane called Toowoomba. 
um, without seeming to boast, uh, and I, 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 I really don't want to boast, but just putting my hands on a keyboard and listening to the sounds, it just made sense. My musical uh, upbringing was, was studying the piano. Um, and uh, I finally, uh, in my two last years of schooling, I went to the Conservatorium High School, which is a, a unique school almost in the world. Um, it's associated at the Conservatorium here in Sydney. Uh, if we were a keyboard player, that was our first study. We had to study a non-keyboard instrument. And if you were a non-keyboard player, uh, as your first instrument, you had to study a keyboard instrument. Um, when I was about four or five out in a country called, called Inverell, which was the largest corps in the Eastern Territory in, in the 50s. You know, had a band of 45 in a town of less than 10,000 people. And it was, you know, it was quite a large corps. And um, a, a, a district band folded up and they said, we'll give the instruments to the army. And my father went out and picked up these instruments and brought them back to the quarters. And I saw this trombone and I just picked it up. And uh, I, I'm not sure that my father wasn't annoyed, actually. But I actually picked this trombone up and I used to march around playing open airs in the backyard uh, to the consternation of the sheep that was given to us to keep the grass down. You know, it sent it mad. Um, but, uh, you know, and I just love the trombone. And then um, fast forward a lot of years, then uh, I, was, I played flugelhorn and corn in the band. And, uh, you know, I did well. I, I found reading the music, you know, incredibly easy. And I also became the songster penis. So... Um, I, I did that for a lot of years and then when I went to the Con High they asked me for a second study and I said I want to play the trombone and uh, so I did and uh, when I went to that school which was in the, the last two years as I said of high school um, the, the, there was only one class per year that's how small the school was and I sat down next to a guy who had already had his letters on the piano uh, he practiced four and five hours a day on the piano, then then stayed up all night and did his schoolwork. He was, you know, he's one of those sort of, you know, goody two shoes sort of guy. But um, I thought, gee, there's a lot of guys in this in this uh, in this class that want to play the piano and they're never ever going to earn a dollar out of it. And uh, I was, you know, doing quite well on the trombone as a second study. So I just said, this is going to be my first study, and that's where it went from there. And as I say, the rest is history. Well, yeah, you know, but um, the keyboard, the keyboard knowledge really, really helps. Yeah, really helps. Amazing. That's a great story. And thank you for delving into that for us. Have you always found it easy to share your faith through your music making? Um, through my music making, yes. Um, everybody uh, from the day of got my first job. Everybody knew that I was a Salvationist. Everybody knew I didn't drink and smoke. Um, and uh, it's never been a problem. And you might find that very interesting. Um, in Australia, we've got a, oh, you know, it would be easy to say that we've got a very, very big alcohol problem uh, in this country. Um, but uh, I've, I've never found it a burden if you, if you lay down uh, your parameters straight away you know if, if you, you don't you just you know and I, I don't mind going down to the pub there's there's no evil in alcohol 
It's what we do with it that is that is is uh, you know such um, uh, doubtful outcomes sometimes. You know, and uh, you know I'll, I'll go down and um, if the guys, you know, at the bar at the opera house have a drink and and my my section uh, that very very moderate if if at all. Um, but they would never ever order me alcohol. That you know they say, oh, you know, you want a lemon squash or a coke or something like that. You know, they would never ever do it. Um, and uh, actually, I had a colleague who said that if I ever took up alcohol, he was leaving town. So uh, <laughs> they they knew my attitude to you know what 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 I professed. It's really interesting to hear that. Thank you. So we now move into a lighter section of the podcast called the Quirky Quickfire Questions. So I've got a few questions uh, for you. Some are fairly standard, but some are a little bit quirky. So we'll start off with some standard ones. Have you got a favourite Salvation Army piece of music? Yes, my comfort and strength of Brian Bowen. Excellent. And to be even more specific, a favourite Salvationist composer? Eric Ball. Excellent choice. What's the best building you've ever stepped foot into? The Vatican. Excellent. This probably links quite nicely to my next question. Uh, Which book of the Bible do you find resonates with you the most? Romans. uh, Because Paul says that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God as expressed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you go on to read... The rest of that chapter, lack of clothing, lack of food, lack of money, they're all the things that he says can't separate us from the love of God, but they are in fact the things that that we take ourselves away from God because we worry about them so much. Yeah, Romans, yeah. And also uh, there's a, a verse in Micah that says, What does the Lord require of me today? that I love justice and mercy and speak daily with my Lord. Thank you for sharing those. What's the best beverage you've ever sipped? An Italian hot chocolate. Molto delicioso, (laughs) probably. Okay, Uh, if you could change any festival march to be dedicated to you, what would it be? Pressing Onward by Eric Lydson. It's funny you say that. I thought it would be Pressing Onward. (laughs) <laughs> what is the best thing about Sydney? Oh, the, the, the beauty of the Sydney and the harbour. It, um, it transcends just about any other city from that point of view that I've ever seen. Great. What is your least favourite animal? Oh, the rat. Ah, yeah, fair play. Uh, what would your dream three-course meal be? Prawn cocktails to start off with. Um... Lobster Mornay, and um, most probably a cream brulee, properly prepared. Excellent. I'll take, take it you don't have a shellfish a- shellfish allergy then. Oh, that's a tongue twister. Oh, <laughs> yeah, oh yes, I, no, I don't have <laughs> Not what that meal. Great. Good choice. Yeah. Uh, now, last question. If you could hop onto a magical surfboard that would instantly transport you to anywhere on the globe, where would you head first? So many places I want to go. This is going to surprise you. Berlin. 
Nice. And I don't think they've even got a surf beach there. I'm sure one yeah. can be made. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I love the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. I think that they are most probably the most complete orchestra in the world. Um, and uh, I, I, I just love to be in, in, that, in that realm for quite a period of time to hear that orchestra play. So, talking about dream orchestras, now we turn our minds to dream bands and we talk about the fully scored fantasy band or the fully scored band manager band 2024. For new listeners to the podcast, just to explain what the concept is, each of our guests that comes onto the show is able to choose two players to nominate for this fantasy band. Now, the players can be chosen for their pure musical brilliance or even just the impact uh, on someone's life that they have had um, before they are inducted into this fantasy band. So, Ron, if you had to choose two players for the fantasy band, who would your two players be? Right. Well, now, I thought about this, um, and I was just thinking purely as players, okay? Not, Not who's impacted me, because I would have to change it. But the two players that I would choose for the fantasy band are Andrew Justice as the first trombone and the current player in the ISB, Gary Fountain on Soprano Cornet. When I heard the ISB come out here um, the last time they visited, I thought Gary Fountain was just a standout. And I've heard them on recordings of I've seen them on YouTube clips, and Gary Fountain is an extraordinary player. And my friend Andrew is uh, a wonderful, wonderful band trombone player. He's without peer, really. Um, I'm surprised that uh, he hasn't been able to, or he hasn't been snapped up by some of the contesting bands once he retired from the ISB. But um, I understand that, you know, there'd be other reasons for that. But... uh, Terrific player, wonderful musician. Absolutely, two fantastic choices and nominations for the band. Yeah. Well, Ron, we'll speak to you a little bit later in the podcast for Band Mastermind, but so far, thank you so much for your time uh, given up and for opening up and telling us a little bit more about your life. Okay, my very great pleasure. Thank you so much, Ron, for giving up your time and sharing just a small insight into your illustrious career and your faith. Now it's time for the conclusion of Jonathan Evans' analysis of RSA's Victorian Snapshots on Ratcliffe Highway. Before we head into this analysis, just a quick heads up. You'll hear the term programmatic music used frequently. By this, we simply mean music that tells a story, rather than absolute music, music just written for music's sake. Let's launch back in, waiting for a bit of a kerfuffle. Well, Jonathan, welcome back to the third part of our analysis of RSAs on Ratcliffe Highway. Uh, listeners, if you haven't heard the first two parts of this excellent analysis, we'd thoroughly recommend that you listen to those both before partaking in our journey into this third part. Jonathan, where are we up to in the music? Well, we've reached letter V and we're about to see a confrontation between a drunk and the Salvation Army Band. The musical inspiration here comes again from Charles Ives or perhaps from his father George. George was an experimenter for whom any combination of notes were allowed as long as there is a reason for it. 
He allegedly once marched two bands towards each other for the sheer thrill of the cacophony. As they approached each other, they would play louder and louder, creating acute dissonance and a collision of tunes. Now, that's not unlike Wilfred Heaton's concert march, Glory, Glory, which was inspired by the collision of a Salvation Army band and a bugle band in his childhood. So there are a couple of examples of this in Salvation Army music. Ives used this technique in the aforementioned in previous podcasts, Three Places in New England, also including drunks rambling and stumbling, whilst in the first movement of that piece, he depicts soldiers marching in mud in a similar way to how RSA shows our drunk on the highway to be unsteady on their feet. The confrontation at Letter V in Ratcliffe Highway begins quietly, as the drunk continues to be unsteady on their feet and quietly sings Champagne Charlie in B-flat. Against this, the band begins Hold the Fort in D-flat, crescendoing on the words, reinforcements now appearing as the many bands join United, and I reference many bands in that Warcry article. The drunk shouts still louder, the tonalities and ways of life clashing as we pass into letter W and a forte. Both songs complete, the band and drunk repeat the choruses, screaming over the top of each other at fortissimo now, before accelerating with the words, back to heaven, back to heaven, over and over, before in fact we return to the hell of the music of the very opening at letter X, complete with all 12 tones and the vulgar callous glissing trombones. A unison thump of C brings the confrontation to a sudden and ugly conclusion. At Y, our flower girl returns at an andante tempo But unlike the previous stately statements of this lavender motif, it is not followed by the Westminster chimes, as RSA takes us into the most passionate statement of his lament yet, sung at Fortissimo. And just to remind you, that lament is entitled, Over All There Is a Divine Heart. The question of what to do with the drunken sailor is wailed in the trombones. However, the lament is again inverted to rising thirds at a mezzo forte, which gives us a moderate sense of hope and things looking up, with the triplet accompaniment of the basses earlier returning. Is the band arriving? RSA shuffles his cards again and places a short reference to the Westminster chimes here. Why? Because the time of victory for the Salvationists and their Christian message has arrived. For those following along with the score, we're now at section AA. At AA, Whitechapel Salvation Army Band explodes into a thrilling G major unrivaled setting of Hold the Fork. (laughs) 
introduction to the enlightened conclusion via a slowing down to present another setting of will be heroes in all its glory using these words we shall conquer we shall conquer through the blood of the lamb we will never retreat we will never retreat though we die till the conquest we've won by the cross The return of Will Be Heroes feels like an Ivesian epiphany. Victory is at hand for God's marching band. The cry of the trombones from the earlier lament is triumphantly transformed as a proud cry of victory in the solar cornet, underpinned by a jubilant bass line. At CC, following the epiphany, many of the tunes collide as if the many figures of the highway are following the band back to the hall for tea. And following the band back to the hall for tea is referenced again by the Joyful Major in their article. Blow the Man Down comes first, with references to Sweet Genevieve chromatically disguised in the flugel, solar horn, first trombone and euphonium. The jubilant bass line of BB that I just referenced moves into the trombones as demanding semiquavers as part of a rallentando. At bar 379, a Sabito piano and Alagando introduces references to the earlier London Bridge waltz that grows into an ostinato figure relentless in pushing forward and joined by a final reference to the Westminster Chimes 5 before DD. The chimes returning at the work's conclusion aligns with the end of Vaughan Williams's London Symphony. In Vaughan Williams's symphony, Westminster chimes are fading into the fog, almost as if passing away in an ominous prediction of the loss of World War I that was to come shortly after. However, there's no emulation of a muted ending by RSA. Rather, the far more joyful chimes in the trombone section charges to a new day and to victory over the injustices seen on the streets of London by the glory of the cross. Whatever empires or cities may rise or fall or become wrecks of time, Jesus' victory and God's kingdom stand forever. The trombone section and snare drum rhythmically remind us of what should we do with a drunken sailor, but all sense of lamentation has been shaken off as a final reminder of London Bridge's falling down takes us to two bars before EE. we have the final return of the lavender motif, this time with great strength in unison and octaves, starting on the first beat in the bar rather than with an anacrusis. We see now that this piece structurally is built around this folk song, just like Haydn did with his London symphonies, and that it has returned over and over to hold the piece together, just like Ives used the British Grenadiers in his three places in New England. For me, it's as if the question has become more than just who will buy my flowers. As we return to the army barracks, we ask, who will sign up and follow? Who will buy into this ministry of salvation? 
Lavender, of course, also has a significance in the Bible, something that can be used to purify and heal. Forgiveness and redemption are at hand here for those on the highway. The excruciating chords of the next bar could be the difficulty that we all face in committing our lives and knowing that some will turn their backs on the offer. A bar later, the deciso announces a clear intention from many to follow Jesus as a ransomed, healed and restored Christian. Now, maybe this poem written by RSA just a year after his composition, um, which details walking through London, reveals some of his imagination for both the piece and especially the ending as our heroes march onward. So this poem is called Glory March. On rare occasions, I go home northward by Paul's Cathedral. One early evening, Friday doled, trudging the churchyard route on impulse, whimsical snippet of thought no more, I headed an imaginary march. The lilt of music in my brain would square the shoulders, sharpen up the pace. An idle fancy, scarce projected, instantly in my mind created. Flags ablaze with God's tricolour, and at the back of me skilled musicians, compact, clear, precise and crisp, play martial tunes that lift the step. Buoyant, silver-sparkling bands, salvation soldiers, numberless as the sands, past the grey church stones we swing, reinforcements crowding in. Saints and martyrs, loved, forgiven, ransomed souls, task force of heaven. Holy colours, streaming brave, say Jesus lives and lives to save. I left the church path through the gate, my spirit soaring, grown elate, burning with a sense of mission, glowing with a Patmos vision. The underground became a shrine on the westbound central line. So that was taken from a stroll home to Barnet, or making his way home to the tube to get to Barnet, in 1979, the year after he had written Ratcliffe Highway. Now, all of that interpretation stuff that I've mentioned there, which I suppose is my interpretation or my interpretation of RSA's programme notes, um, isn't the only interpretation out there. Professor Stephen Allen from America has written quite a lot about Ratcliffe Highway, and he hears Newton's hymns, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, set to Haydn's Austria hymn, um, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, which is very similar to Who Will Buy My Pretty Lavender, whichever word you want to use for that motif. Um, now, RSA never named it as such. Alan also thinks that bar with the excruciating causes is some kind of exorcism or conversion taking place. Um, again, not mentioned by RSA, but there is a sense here that all of the events of the Warcry article are coming to pass with folks being forgiven and turning their lives to Jesus, just as Charles Jeffries did in Whitechapel back in the 1880s. Interesting to note the different interpretations, though as it shows that programmatic music is still full of room for personal reflection and interpretation. Remember the lady from the first episode um, in the War Cry article who heard the band, didn't know the words to the song they were playing, but to her it said, come back to God, God can make you happy. And the band managed to prevent her suicide. It didn't matter whether or not they were the words actually associated with the music. We've talked a lot about Vaughan Williams and he was really worried that the London Symphony would have been seen as programmatic and it, it had, in his view, it needed to be absolute music. However, Charles Ives, the other main inspiration on this piece, argued for programme music as surely it's just absolute music with subheadings. In fact, if we look at the history of classical music and the most revolutionary music written, 
it's mostly been programmatic in every era. So if you go right back to Monteverdi's Vespers, program music. The Eroica Symphony, program music. The Rite of Spring, program music. Three Places in New England, just to name a few. As a Salvation Army, we have the greatest stories to tell, so perhaps we need more program music. We shouldn't be too scared or too ignorant to not share the word association of our music with our listeners. It doesn't narrow the possibilities of their response. It simply gives them a starting point or a framework. Whether you are a 19th century prostitute or a modern day musicologist, you can respond and interpret for yourself as you want to or hopefully as the Holy Spirit leads you to. And RSA actually said, you've got to believe the Holy Spirit will translate the unknowable in music. If Jesus is a teacher, he's an interpreter too. So everyone, when you're playing your pieces, get your words on the screen. Back to Ratcliffe Highway. And the close is powerful. There's a likeness to, again, Haydn's London Symphonies with a kind of a populist finish. RSA knew a Salvation Army audience and he knew what kind of ending they would want at an occasion like a um, hundred years of Salvation Army banding being celebrated. The music is in line with the muscular evangelism of the early army and the revival meetings of Charles Ives' youth. As all the voices join together in huge organ-like chords, bright fanfare figures and that jubilant bass line of Will Be Heroes, which went into the trombones, is now transformed into the cornets. Earlier in the piece, the lament figure passed all the way from the soprano to the bass, as if heaven was weeping over the scene. Here, in the latter half of the piece, the jubilant figure has risen through the basses, through the trombones and onto the cornets as heaven rejoices and we're being lifted up to God. The euphonia reminds us that the early day salvationists truly were heroes, with another reference to will be heroes, and maybe alludes to the fact that we can all be heroes who can conquer through the cross of Christ who has overcome the world. Now, do you remember the note missing from the 11 note thump in that earlier fistfight? It was a unison G, and at the end of this piece, a unison G crashes down in unity and strength to end the work. Now, the question I've been asking as I've been looking at the score, is this deliberate? Well, I certainly wouldn't put that level of detail past the great Ray Steadman Allen. And so ends one of the most remarkable works in all brass band literature and the Salvation Army's very own London Symphony. can we take away from this music for our society we find ourselves in today? Okay, well, let's talk about the music first. I think RSA takes army music to a new height with this work. 
I love it because it's daring and it's experimental. It stands up next to the artistry of Charles Ives, Ralph and Williams and other musical giants. So when I listen to this music, I'm reminded of the rich musical heritage we have as a movement through composers like RSA with their musical adventures that introduce techniques and sounds from the 20th century mainstream into their Salvation Army work. His use of the collage technique inspired by Ives just leaves me in awe, especially in the way that he knits the tunes and their opposing tonalities together in a way that suggests they've always belonged together. The craftsmanship is exceptional, and even if some tunes are unknown to you, the snapshots are vividly unmistakable. And it remains today uh, still a great challenge as a player and as a listener. And the, the last time I had the, the, the fortune to be on staff with the Territory Youth Band, just before the, the pandemic in 2020, um, we played this, and the kids absolutely loved it. I hope our composers today continue to be brave in our concert music and continue to push barriers whilst using recognisable tunes and a well-honed craft too. I also think though that secondly this music is about connecting with culture. RSA said he felt Salvation Army music needed to be steeped in biblical truths and the principle of adapting methods and means to communicate effectively in different cultural settings is seen in the Bible, it's seen in the book of Acts. As the first apostles learned to speak new languages, both linguistically and culturally, in order to express the gospel. Now, back in the 19th century, in William Booth's opinion, Christianity appeared to make absolutely no difference to the lives of Victorians in the East End. Booth was scathing of the churches of the day for practising their worship in ways that failed to connect with working class culture. It's why they ditched hymns and organs and replaced them with popular instruments and songs set to the tunes of secular music, worshipping in skating rinks, dance halls and theatres, these sites of working class cultures. And uh, I'm going to quote here from Captain Callum McKenna, who's done a little bit of writing about how we connect music with culture. The challenge for the contemporary Salvation Army comes, I think, as we consider the question, in what ways does our worshipping life today connect with those in our surrounding communities? It's easy with the passing of time for the stuff of our worship, the songs, the instruments, the style, to become the thing that we hold on to tightly without realising it's no longer connecting with the people we're trying to reach. We need to be prepared to let go of our own preferences in worship for the greater missional good. Now, in response to that, I could go on at length as to why we still need Salvation Army bands as part of that and how well they can relate to their communities. But we also must be ready to adapt in what we play and where we play too. Another quote here from RSA, we are serving a higher power and may need to modify our musical language. Almost the only things that stay the same are the spiritual facts of life. The Salvation Army itself needs to consider, in my opinion, how it resources its musicians to be as effective on a street corner as we can be on a Sunday morning. We came into being to play outside and we need more help to do so at a local level in an effective way in the age of copyright. Let's not forget that Vaughan Williams and Ives, who are England and America's greatest symphonists, wrote music based on folk, hymns and the sounds of the street. So if it's good enough for them... It should be good enough for us. And lastly, I'm also reminded by this piece that ours has been a church full of social justice heroes right from our beginnings. That we belong on the streets serving the needy, whatever their affliction or need. Think of William Booth's In Darkest England manifesto for social reform in 1891. His support for the matchstick girls or the raising of the age of consent. 
Incidentally, it was a Salvation Army band that marched the petition for the change to the age of consent to Parliament. Salvation Army music, too, has always had a sense of protest about it and has provided a soundtrack for the Army's war against all that stops people from experiencing life in all its fullness in Christ. Within our tradition, music, then, is a motivator, and it's still motivating today. 2016, during the Syrian migration crisis, a special carol service was organised outside the UK Parliament, complete with a Salvation Army band. When churches joined together in 2023 to march against climate change, they were led by a Salvation Army band. The Music Man project in Lee is changing the lives of disabled people for the better. I'm excited for what injustice an army band will fight against next. What will it be? Joining a pride march? Protesting against human trafficking and harmful government proposed laws in Parliament Square? Supporting Black Lives Matter protests? I hope so. And I'd be interested to know what people think too. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for all the research that you've gone through and put into that analysis it really is hugely appreciated and has kept me on the edge of my seat throughout as we've journeyed through Victorian London with you, but also into our society today. Thank you for giving us your interpretation as well and making it so relevant for us today as we listen. Before we go, do you want to just summarise and conclude everything that you've said? Yeah, and I know it's been several episodes and uh, maybe something to sum up would be helpful. You see, for me, this piece of music is not so much a story of what the Salvation Army did 150 years ago, amazing though that was, and important for us to know and to understand. This piece is our church's past, our present, and our future, to be Jesus in our communities. In the Warcry article I mentioned, Core Number One Poplar is mentioned as one of the bands who provided reinforcement with Hold the Fort, and they're still doing it at that core. They're serving the homeless, they're running food banks, and they're shining the love of Christ with relevance to their locality. Think about what snapshots we could take in our world today. Climate change, refugee crisis, homophobia, gender inequality, addictions, food banks, racism, homelessness, human trafficking, war, and millions of people still living in poverty. As Christians and as salvationists, these things should make us uncomfortable and make us want to act and be heroes whose victory is not through us, but by the cross, pointing the way to Jesus, whatever music we are using to get that job done. Forget Victorian, go beyond London. These are 2024 snapshots, and we need an army and Salvation Army bands who are ready to fight to get our hands dirty by connecting with our culture as our forebears did. Or, as if you remember back to the first episode, as Charles Ives put it, to be a Salvation Army brass band with angelic wings on who save souls and grow the kingdom. Amazing. Thank you so much again, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan, for taking us on that journey through the musical depiction, but also for the unpacking and interpretation of the music and its relevance for us today. We really do appreciate the monumental amount of work and research that you've put in over this three-part analysis. I'm really hopeful that we'll hear from you again soon in the future. I, for one, can't wait. Now, talking about waiting, that's pretty much all there is to do if you're stuck on the isolated and deserted island that we here on Fully Scored call Arid Island. Run!
Island. Our castaway this month is Paul Winterbourne. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us on Arid Island this month. It's great to speak to you. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. It's great to be involved. Um, it's a great podcast and my family love it, uh, even those with no musical background. So it's really hitting the spot there. Uh, thanks very much. And um, I was even bronze medalist for the last uh, Sparsley Squad as well. So I've uh, Quite chuffed, really, for that achievement, for fanfare our brains. Absolutely. A worthy achievement indeed, and thank you very much for those kind words. So it'll be great to just ask a few questions to get to know you a little bit before we ask for your Arid Island choice. So you're bandmaster at Sheringham Call over in North Norfolk, and you've also been a youth band leader, you're currently a youth band leader, and have been previously for quite a number of years. Can you tell us about that? Well, yes, it's an absolute privilege to now be in my 27th year leading Sheringham Band. Lovely call on the Norfolk coast, as you say. Great to be uh, really welcomed in the community and have the opportunity for uh, beach meetings during the summer. So well attended. Um, I've been doing the uh, Songston since 2021 as well. Um, really enjoying that. And now in my 18th year, we're leading the Divisional Youth Band, working closely with Tom Grimshaw, who's the youth course leader, uh, we're one entity really now, working together. Uh, a great team of young leaders uh, with East of England youth as well. Fantastic. That's really great to hear. And another string to your bow, you've had uh, quite a few of your compositions published in the Sing to Lords, Children's and Mixed Voice series as well. Do you enjoy writing music? Yes, it's an absolute privilege to have been published. The songs really started off um, as theme songs for Divisional Music Schools, Neil Winton has been the lyricist for almost all of my uh, published songs. So we wrote together, given the theme of the music school, and came up with the songs for that year. And so it was a real joy to work with some fine lyrics that uh, Neil provides. And that's a real uh, enjoyment that I get from, from writing music. Fantastic. We'll look forward to hearing more of it in the future, hopefully, as well. And uh, even with all those musical activities that you keep yourself busy with, your career is a not musical one. No, that's right. Um, I've been an estate agent in Sheringham for the last 32, 33 years. So privileged to have had a good job without having to move away from home. And an interesting uh, factoid for you, uh, my manager is my B-flat bass player. So I don't tell him I get my own back at weekends, but uh, I try not to. <laughs> Excellent. A small world there, indeed. And uh, thank you for giving us a little bit of a snapshot and window into your life there. Well, that takes us on to the all-important question. Paul, if you were deserted on an arid island in the middle of nowhere and you could take one album with you, what would that album be and why? Sure, well, I had a... A couple of uh, directions I was going on this. I often go back to listening to albums I enjoyed in the late 80s, all on cassette tapes back then rather than vinyl, so I could listen in the car as well. So there was things like No Jacket Required by Phil Collins, Incredible Phoenix Horns, Brass Section, World Machine by Level 42, Mark King's Amazing Slap Bass Guitar. Uh, and that was a period when some of us from the core went to the annual Greenbelt Christian Festival 
in Northamptonshire. So we got to see some really world-class acts such as Amy Grant, uh, Michael W. Smith. And so when the youth course leaders at the time, Juliet Parker and then now Hallett Foster, introduced those songs to the youth course, uh, the group of us who were the backing musicians like Phil Mappadorum, Stu Northfield, Simon Fisher, Paul Ward, Gareth Craig, we tried to get as close to those arrangements as we could. So I nearly took uh, a, a gospel album with me, such as Cliff Richard's Walking in the Light, which is a fantastic gospel album. But as it is fully scored after all, I've ended up with uh, The Southern Cross by Chalk Farm Band and Bandmaster Michael Clack from 1988. I really enjoy Michael's interpretations across the whole range of styles on that album, including the band's singing. And for me, it reflects a particular period in Salvation Army music. There's a title track from Brian Bowen, Southern Cross, uh, Leslie Condon's bass duet, Radiant Pathway, uh, The Ransom Army by Kevin Norbury, who was in the band at that time. And there's also music from American composers who were really becoming well-established in the UK by then, Bruce Broughton's Covenant, and a particular standout, James Kerner's Laude, uh, a real offering of praise, some glorious variations on Lobed and Heron. But the main reason I would uh, take this album to the Arid Island is to listen to Ray Todd's performance of Ray Bower's Rhapsody for Call It a Man. Now, Ray Todd was a real encourager for me in my music ministry, uh, having got to know him when he moved to Norwich. Um, and it's the way he adds his own subtle ornamentation to the Presto theme with such authority that if you hear it played by anybody else, it almost sounds bare without it. Um, Ways wonderful sound and really stylish throughout. So that's the real reason I choose Southern Cross by Chalk Farm Band. Fantastic. Well, what a wonderful album choice. Excellent rationale. And uh, thank you so much for that choice. Thank you for giving up your time to join us on Arid Island. And also, a bit more personally, thank you for all the influence that you had on me as youth band leader when I was growing up as well in Anglia. It was a great pleasure to uh, have had you playing principal corner for that time and uh, good days wasn't it good days absolutely thank you paul for your time and excellent album choice now that unexpectedly leads quite nicely onto sparsely scored After just two episodes revealing the solo and second horn parts, we've had several winners who correctly identified the piece from the excerpt we played in our last two episodes. Here's a reminder of what we heard. Guessing first and taking home the gold, it's today's Arid Island inhabitant, Paul Winterbourne, congratulations for guessing the piece correctly and first. Taking home the silver is Max Rogers, and the bronze goes to Sue Garnham. Thank you to all who guessed, and congratulations to those who correctly identified the piece as Ray Stedman Allen's Neath the Italian Skies.
So here's a new snippet. Take a listen to this extract. If you think you can identify the piece, then send us a direct message on any of our social media pages and let us know and you could be crowned champion. And here it is again. Any guesses? Talking about guesses, I wonder how many of the band mastermind questions you might be able to guess correctly. More or less than today's guest in the hot seat, Ron Prossing. Ron, thank you for joining us back for Band Mastermind in the hot seat that is the Band Mastermind hot seat, aptly named. So, you'll have one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many brass band trivia questions as you can to see where you place on the fully scored board. Uh, oh. Anything above the score of zero is good for Band Mastermind. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, are you nervous? Yes. Good, excellent, and hopefully we'll feel that tension in the quiz. Ronald Prussing, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? As ready as I will ever be, yes. Your time starts now. Can you name two current ISB members who have had their music published in a UK and Ireland Territory brass band journal? No. OK, we'll move on. How long was Derek Kane a member of the ISB for? 46 years. You're close, but not correct. Can you name two native Englishmen who have been bandmasters of the Amsterdam Staff Band? Howard Evans, and I don't know the other one. We'll give you half a point for that then. Which former Chicago Staff Bandmaster is the current Chicago Staff Bandmaster related to? Well, the only previous band was Bill Hines. So correct. I, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. You are correct there. Who wrote the March Chalk Farm number two? I'll say Eric Ball. Incorrect, but I'm afraid. I'm not sure. Yeah. Can you name one tune featured in Raybo's The King's Crusader? No. Nope, we'll move on. Which of these three composers has not had a transcription of their work published by the Salvation Army? Giovanni Gabrielli, Thomas Morley or Eric Sarte? Eric Sarte. That's incorrect, I'm afraid. And last question oh. that we have time for. What is the name of Bramwell's Cole's first published march in the festival series? I'll, uh, I'll take a guess. Under two flags. It's not, I'm afraid. And I'm afraid <laughs> that is our time up there. So that gives you a score of... One and a half, I believe, which is really not a bad score for Band Mastermind <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, we'll go. Uh, shall I go back through all the answers there so you can quietly yeah, kick sure. yourself under the table yeah. and any listeners yeah. also? So, the first question I asked was Can you name two current ISP members who've had their music published in a UK and I territory brass band journal? Uh, you could have had Paul Sharman, Alan Williams, Andrew Headley, or Gavin Lamplar believe that's everyone. Uh, Derek Kane was a member of the ISP for 42 years. Oh, 42, then, yeah. I knew that it was 40-something 40, 40 years, yeah. And I believe there are three Englishmen who have been bandmasters of the Amsterdam Staff Band, 
Howard Evans, Don Jenkins, and Peter Ailing. Oh, uh, Peter Ailing, yeah. Right. The March Chalk Farm number two is written by Edward Gregson. And there were three tunes featured in Rainbow's The King's Crusader Blessed Assurance, at the tune Fountain, and Who is on the Lord's Side, Ratchy, right. as well. Uh, yep, so you correctly answered about uh, Chicago Staff Man Master, currently Brett Tulcher, whose uncle is Bill Himes. And out of the three composers that I named, Gabrielli, Thomas Morley, and Sarte, it's only Thomas Morley that hasn't had a work uh, published in the What was the Eric, what's the Eric Sarte piece? Did they do uh, a gymnopathy, did they? There's a, yeah, I think it's gymnopathy. I think it's a Brian Bone transcription, but I might be wrong. Ah, right. On that yeah. one. And yeah. uh, the name of Bramwell Coles' first published festival march, I think it's number four in the festival series, is Departed Heroes. Released in 1923. Goodness gracious. Thank you once again, Ron, for your time and talents. I hope that we can hear from you again in the near future. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for in this episode. But don't worry, we'll be back next month with another. If you've enjoyed listening, please do consider leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Now, for a few thanks... Thank you to our terrific trio of guests, Ron, Jonathan and Paul. You've all been outstanding. Thank you for your precious time to share your thoughts. Thank you to our producer, Simon, for much like the buttercream and jam betwixt a Victoria sponge, tethering this episode together in such a delicious way. Thank you to Wobplay for hosting our podcast and curated playlist to compliment. And finally, thank you to you, our listeners. Without you, I'd just be talking to myself, and that would be a bit weird. Goodbye, and God bless.